Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. How many of you have ever, and this probably won't be many of you, uh, how many of you have maybe at some point in your life received a letter or um, maybe have a phone call and you found out that you were going to inherit some money? I remember when I was about, I don't know, my late teens, I think, I can't remember, 56, that's a long time ago. Um, I I remember getting a letter from a a, a legal agency, a, a law firm, and I opened it up, and inside there was a letter from the, the firm and a check for $1,000. Woo! From an aunt that had passed away that I didn't really know. Maybe I'd met her. Maybe she knew me when I was a little guy, and I just don't remember. That was a really great day for me. I mean, 1000 bucks 40 years ago was a lot of money to a 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid. It's a lot of money to me today, actually. But, but then it was a, a significant amount of money to me. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, I didn't have to work for this. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't have to ask for it. I didn't have to do the legal preparation to plan for it. It just was free. I just showed up in my mail. I got it. I didn't have to do a single thing. I thought, well, I, I like this. Maybe more people will give me money. Right? It hasn't happened. Today, as we get into Hebrews chapter 9, what we're going to begin to see here is the writer is continuing to just continue to to reiterate some of these themes that we've been talking about for the last couple months. He's going to use this analogy at some point of a will. Um, This word will, uh, in other words, this this lady's will was enacted upon her death, and I got a thousand bucks. Didn't have to do a thing. I didn't have to do one thing to receive that $1,000 except to cash a check, right? Now he's, he's going to show this in the Scripture because he's going to say that God has done something for us. And, and we're going to look at what it's really the new covenant. We've been talking about that for the past few weeks, this idea that the, the, the high priest, Jesus has come, he's, the, the author here has been explaining all that. And if you're, if you're new with us today, we're in this book of Hebrews, um, this is a, an author that we don't know who it is. This, historians really don't know who it is. But he clearly is writing to the Jewish people that are now Christians. They're Hebrews and they're believers. And he's writing them to encourage them to leave the old covenant behind. The whole sacrificial system, everything that came with it, all the animal sacrifices, which they had been practicing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he's told them that Jesus is better than all that. This new guy who's on the scene, who's died and has been resurrected, he is better and he's the fulfillment of all those things. And so now he begins to talk about this idea of a will. Now that word can be interchangeably for testament. So sometimes uh, it's the last will and testament of somebody. It's their stated wishes, what's going to happen, how their their, uh, estate is going to be delivered and and poured out. And there's an executor that kind of handles that. Well, God has created a system in which he is the executor and he has a will and he is going to execute that will. And see, here's the thing. What was the problem with the old covenant? We've been talking about that a lot. What was the problem with it? The problem was is that when, when Moses and the people of Israel came to God at Mount Sinai and they entered into this covenant, 
they had something that they had to do. They had to obey. They had to obey the law. They had to obey it. They said they would. And we realized that they didn't. They haven't been able to do that. And so God, for hundreds and hundreds of years, has this old covenant, and it's good, and it's, it has its place. It's God's plan. But now a new covenant's come along. And what's the beauty of the new covenant? It doesn't depend on us. I mean, I just really want you to let that soak in for a second. You say, well, what do you mean it doesn't? It doesn't depend on us. The new covenant is God's. It's just like this check that I received from this this aunt that I didn't really know. Nothing depended on me. I was alive. I was related somehow to this woman, and she had some generosity that she wanted to show me. But I did nothing. But she lavished this gift on me. And here is what the author is kind of beginning to talk about of how this looks, how that happens. And so today, if if you're not joining us very often, we have what's called the big idea. It's it's kind of the thing that we we kind of overarch the whole message. Sometimes we don't always use one, but kind of the big idea. And here's the big idea for you today. God provides everything in the new and better covenant. Now it's new because it's replacing the old. And it's better. It's better than the old. Why is it better? Because it doesn't count on us. The old covenant... Depended on them, and they couldn't do it, just like you and I couldn't do it. God knew that they couldn't do it. And so, but he's setting up something to point to something better. And we've been talking a lot about that. God provides everything. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, these like 14 or 15, 16, 17 verses, I don't know how many we got here. We're going to look at what God does and what he provides. Because I'm telling you, he provides everything. And, and I'm going to point out five big things that I think this text reveals that he is providing. And I'm going to probably stretch some of this this morning because when we think about who God is and what he is doing, it really causes us, if we're in the right mind, to sit back and just sit down and say, okay, I'm the creation and he's God and he can do what he wants. And it's all going to be for his glory. And he's doing this for his purposes. He has a will, not just, he has a will, not like a will and testament. He has a will, a desire to do something for his purposes. And what are his purposes? for his glory, to bring himself glory. Isaiah says that we were created for his glory. He is the creator of all things. And so sometimes we have a hard time with that because we want to say, no, we're in charge. We get to do this and we get to do that. We get to make these decisions. And yes, we have choices to make and and we're responsible for God. Absolutely. But God is not needing us to bring about his purposes in this world. He is going to bring them about. He is going to do all these things. And so just hang with me, and, and hopefully you'll see what I'm getting at here as we look at the text. But before we do that, I want, I want to take it back um, to what Pastor Brian was preaching through last week a little bit. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read just about three or four verses at the end of his message last week because it really sets up how we start here in verse 15 in chapter 9. So let's look back at Hebrews chapter 11 through 14. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read through this quickly. I'm going to make a few comments, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by holy places, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what is the author saying here? He's just just making this point here when Brian was ending that, that Jesus is capable of doing all things. Here's what he said. He's just kind of provided a brief recap for us because then we're going to see here as we go into verse 15, he says, therefore, right? But here I just want to hang out here for just a minute because there was something that was in Brian's text last week that I just want to highlight again because I think it's so important. He, here he says that the high priest has appeared. Jesus has come, right? He's greater. He's, 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 the, perfect, um, he's the perfect priest. He's... he's showing us that there's going to be a, a sanctuary in heaven and that all these things uh, on the earth, the tabernacle is just pictures and foreshadowing of what is to come. He enters this holy place in heaven, not, not the tabernacle here, but in heaven, but not by the bloods of goats and bulls, but his own blood. And what does he do? He sanctifies and he purifies us, right? And, and the author is just saying, look, if, if the blood of animals could do that here and, and, and kind of sanctify the flesh in some way, how much more will the blood of Christ in this holy tabernacle, what will it do? And I want to focus you on the last line because it says he will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just explain that a minute. In the Old Covenant, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement, which was once a year, went in to make atonement for the nation, and so if you study your Bible and you study the Old Testament, uh, they could take sacrifices all year long when you knew you sinned, you should take a sacrifice and, and take it in, and, and it should cover your sin. The Day of Atonement was really for all the, um, Scripture says, all the um, unknown sins, all the, the, the sins that were made that we didn't, they don't even know about, that, you know, our sinful hearts, all these things that have happened, maybe we just don't wear, we're unaware of them. And so the Day of Atonement was to say, God is saying, no, you, you have to cover all of it, because I know there's some people that haven't come, you didn't know you sinned, and so the Day of Atonement was to cover all of that. And so the priest would go in, and, and he would go in, and when he went in on the Holy of Holies and into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he usually there was incense, and, and so he was shrouded in smoke a little bit. And why? Because he didn't really want to be seen by God, right? And, and I know that's like, well, God can see. Yeah, we know that, but it was this picture. They didn't quite fully understand. And he would go, and he would put blood on the mercy seat. And this idea of putting blood on the mercy seat is the top of the the Ark of the Covenant, and there's, there's two angels and cherubims on this side, and he, he places the blood on the top of the Ark. It's gold, and, and what's in the Ark is what? The law, the, the tablets of the, the, the Ten Commandments. There's a jar, a golden jar of manna uh, that, that obviously the law is there, and then the provision of God in, in the wilderness, this manna is a signifier there. It says there's a the budding rod of Aaron, and has to do with God is, has selected Aaron and, and to be able to do this, and but many of those things, they, they rebelled. They, they broke the law. The provision, they grumbled about that. They didn't always follow the leadership the way they were. And so they sinned. And so notice that, that God would be over the, the tent in, in a, a pillar of cloud. And, and he would look down, symbolically, he would look down. And he would see their sin, the Ark of the Covenant. And what the priest would do is he would just put blood in between what God would see. And he would see the blood of the animal. And so he would 
that would be satisfied. He would satisfy. He would not see their sin. There was a covering, and that's why it was put on top of the mercy seat over all of those things. It covered the law. It covered their, their lack of trust in God with the provision, their, their leadership, and all of it. It covered it. The other thing that we see in this whole process is that the priest did not have a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. Notice that the priest wasn't going in in one of, of joy to be with the Father. He went in, did his business, and got out. He was afraid. He would wash and be ceremonially good and, and to make sure that he was right, and they would go in. And in fact, many in the, in the community of the Israelite community would wait, and they would see the, the pillar of cloud, and they would wonder, is this guy going to come out? Is it going to come out? And they would all be relieved when the priest came out, right? So the, the, the priest would go in and do his work. But see, here's the problem. The priest and all the nation of Israel, why the covering happened, their conscience wasn't clean. Because there was, no relational, there was no relationship. There was nobody that really came along and said, man, I forgive you, I love you. There, there was no, you, you, they did the, the symbolic thing, but there was no relational cleansing. And notice what he says here when he says, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works. This idea that in this, this new, new covenant, what God is going to do is he's going to purify our conscience. Don't miss that. That, that, that. God has given us a conscience. I don't have time to go into all this, but it is the thing that is in us that, that the Holy Spirit is working in, that we, we're aware of sin, we're, we're aware of all those things, and we have a guilty conscience, don't we? When you go back to Adam and Eve, what, did, what happened? They sinned and they were ashamed. They knew they had sinned, and they had a guilty conscience. And God covers them, but they still felt bad, right? There was no reconciliation. There, there was no relieving that in that sense. God's wrath was, was covered and, and said, it'll be held off because we're going to kill an animal, and he does those things, but, but there's no reconciliation here. In the new covenant, Christ is going to clear our conscience. We can have a joy, even though we have had sin in our life. And that is so important. It's such a different thing in the New Testament. All right. So with that being said, what does the author now switch to in verse 15? Therefore, if God has done all of these things, if Jesus is the purification of the flesh and he's went into the Holy of Holies in heaven and he's done these things, he's appeared to us, he's, he's brought redemption, therefore, the author says, he is the mediator of the new covenant. If the new covenant is based on these things and he's the one that did it, therefore he's the mediator. He's it, right? He's it. Now this idea of being a mediator, sometimes we think, um, like, the best thing I can think of is like union, union negotiations. You know, there's a strike and, and the, the company wants this and the, the workers want this and, and they bring a, a mediation team in, an arbitration, and they, they say, well, you give a little here and you give a little here and we'll come together. That's not what this is. Jesus is not going to negotiate with the Father. God says, this is it. This is my law. This is what I want. This idea of mediation, he intercedes. What Jesus is really doing is coming before the Father and saying, I have fulfilled the necessary requirements for you to forgive them because I have taken the penalty. He's mediating God's wrath. In other words, he's satisfying it. He's not negotiating here with God for us right? He's going in and just saying, Lord, Father, I've taken care of it. They are mine, right? I'm, I'm these, these people are mine. I've satisfied this. I've paid the price for them, right? He's there before God doing that. 
We read a few weeks ago, actually maybe a month ago, in chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews. It says, consequently, once again, he's referring back to something based on who all this author says Jesus is. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we talked again about that Jesus is before the Father all the time, making intercession for us, not negotiating with God, not saying, well, you know, this. No, he's saying, I've fulfilled what you've asked me to do, and they're mine. They, they've, I've, I've, they're my bride. They're good, right? And so what's the first thing that we see here? If God provides everything in the new and better covenant, what is the first and most important thing that God provides? He provides the perfect priest. He provides the perfect priest. Notice that the 84 high priests that had been over the last several hundreds of years weren't perfect. There was thousands of other lower priests that weren't perfect. God provides the thing that we cannot provide. We have nobody that can go before us as a priest in human form except for Christ. And that's why it was so important that Jesus became a man. Because he had to be our high priest. He had to be our perfect, perfect representative to come before God in human form. Fully human, fully God. And so here, he's just acknowledging this thing. That he is the perfect mediator of the new covenant. And so thus we have a perfect priest. He goes on there and he says in verse 15, he says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that, that idea that, um, this idea of called, it says, and those that, who are called may receive. Literally, that, if that translation were taken very literally, it says, the ones having been called. The ones having been called. So it's kind of past tense. It's also looking to the future, but it's really saying oh, there's people that have been called in the past. And so what is the author saying there? He's saying, look, God has called people way before Jesus. Called a people to himself. And they're going to be saved through Christ. See, everybody that's ever lived that is going to be spending eternity with God in heaven is saved because of Christ. You say, well, but Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come yet. And that's right. And they're still saved through Christ. And we're going to see that in a minute. Be they were saved by faith in what God was going to do. They were looking to the Messiah. We look back. But they were looking forward. And that's why it says righteousness was accredited to Abraham because of his faith. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you righteousness because you've trusted me and what I'm going to do. That's the whole picture there when, when Abraham tries to, was going to sacrifice willingly his son, Isaac. He trusted God so much so that he was willing to, to kill his own son because he thought that God would bring him back to life. He just trusted him. And so, but know that they're not going to ultimately be saved because there's a penalty, a just penalty that has to happen yet. So God is, is waiting until Christ comes. And here we're going to pick this up in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And so Paul kind of puts it. He's looking back. He's talking about this. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He's talking about Jesus here. God has put Christ forward, brought Christ in, and, and put him up as the sacrificial lamb. To be a propitiation, we've talked about this word a lot, a propitiation is the satisfying of God's wrath, something that satisfies the justice and the wrath of God, right? So God, who did this? God did. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This idea that Abraham knows they believed, because he's talking about the Old Testament. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, when you read that, he's passed over former sins. God cannot pass over and, and, and not judge sin. So when it says he passed over, it means that he withheld, he delayed his judgment until Christ came. That's, that's what happened in the Old Testament. See, Abraham deserved to die just like everybody else. And yet, Christ hadn't come yet, so the blood hadn't been shed. Christ hadn't atoned for them, right? In fact, the sacrificial system was, was just getting started, right? And so what God does, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delay my justice and my judgment until my son comes. And then it's going to come down on my son. And so those that I've called prior will now receive the inheritance. Because, and you're going to see this here in a minute, because the will has now been enacted. It's now been ratified. So the forbearance, he passed over, delayed justice. So he's called people in the Old Testament to be himself. See, God is doing something. God is calling out a people for himself, not just Israel. He's calling out those that will come to him by faith. Paul talks about it this way, though, looking forward now. He's looking back there. God has delayed his justice, and they're going to get eternal life because they believed in Christ. They believed in God. They've trusted him. Now he looks forward in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. Paul puts it this way. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, now he's talking about in the present and moving forward. For all those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want you to see just a few things. We don't have time to go through everything here, and I would encourage you to go read Ephesians 1. I, was, I had it all lined up to read it, but we just don't have time. Um, that's a whole other multiple messages. But notice what it says there. For those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. And that's what Ephesians 1 says so good about unpacking. He has a, he has a purpose. In fact, what is what it went against? Once Isaiah says, right, we were created to bring glory to God. There was a purpose for creation. There was a purpose to bring us into existence. There was a purpose for the Old Testament and, and to point to Christ. Everything has a purpose. God is, in his wisdom and his majesty, is laying out a perfect cosmic plan to bring himself glory. It is not required. We are not, he does not need us to do that. In fact, he shows us in the Old Testament that we just muck it up, to be honest with you. And so God in the New Testament says, I will take care of everything. I will take care of everything. I'm going to call the people to myself. In fact, if you remember um, a few weeks ago when the author here in Hebrews was referencing, I believe it was Jeremiah, and he was quoting something, what does the prophet say? He says, basically speaking for God, and he says, God says, I will put my law into their mind and into their heart, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. That's not dependent on anybody. That is God doing something. He does not need permission. He's doing something and calling a bride for himself. I love to look at it this way because I think the New Testament really paints this picture. The father is fashioning a bride 
for his son. He's, he's, he's making her holy. He's making her white as snow. He's drawing her out. He's calling her, and, and he's going to just make this beautiful bride, and he's going to present this bride to his son. Why? Because his son has been so obedient and perfect and, and just loved him, and, and he's just, this is a purpose, and this is where we get this marriage supper of the lamb, right? And so not only does here we see that God provides a perfect priest, but God provides a people for himself. God provides a people. It's not dependent upon us. Remember the New Testament, it was dependent upon them in the, Old, in the First Testament. Now in the New Testament, it is not dependent upon us. God is calling a people for himself. He puts this call out. And notice what it says there as it goes on. It says, so he's called these people, and who is doing the justifying? In the Old Testament, they had to be good. They couldn't be. So God does the justifying now. He's saying, I will justify them. I will, I will give them a righteousness they do not have. I will make them right before me by the death of my son. They can't do it anyway. So I'm going to do it. Not only am I going to call these people, I'm going to justify them and make them right. And then what does it say? It goes on there. It says, and those he justifies, he also glorifies. Those, he's going to bring them all the way home. Not only is he going to call them, he's going to make them right. He's going to make them sinless, but he's going to bring them all the way home to glory. He's doing that. As believers, we Many times, as people, especially I think as Western people, we feel that we have to be involved in everything that God is doing and we get say. And yes, we have to respond to God. That is biblical. We have to, Scripture says we must believe, we must turn away from our sin, but, but God is the one doing these things. And the new covenant is this beautiful picture that he is handling everything. And what a glorious thing, because we can't. Hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years, we looked at Israel, and they could not do it. They couldn't. And so what better news could we have but that God comes along and says, I'm going to make a new will and testament with you. I'm going to do something that no one can do. I'm going to bring the priest. I'm going to call a people to myself. And why? It goes on there in the rest of 15. It says, it may have the promised eternal inheritance. So God's doing something, and he's going to, Give us something, right? John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says it this way, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus painted a very pure picture. You either, you either love me and are for me and, and you're going to be found in me, or you're not. And if you're not, you will spend eternity away from me. And the wrath of God remains. I will not be the propitiation for you. I will not satisfy the wrath of God for you because you have not trusted in me. Later in John, Gospel of John, verse, chapter 10, verse 28, notice who's giving this here. He says, I will give them eternal life. Who? He is giving eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's one of the things that we believe Scripture clearly teaches that once God has called us and once we have been found in Christ, we can never walk away from that. There's so many reasons why I think Scripture absolutely supports that, but Jesus is making it clear. No one can take them. No one can take you. If you're a believer, no one can take you. You're mine. I hold you. I have you. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They will never perish. And so what do we see here? Not only does he provide a a perfect priest, he provides a people for himself, but he provides the ultimate privilege of eternal life. The ultimate privilege of eternal life. 
you know, I, I was thinking this morning, as I often do, um, and even in my complaining, sometimes I think this, I am privileged to be a member of the body of Christ. I mean, I get overwhelmed sometimes. I mean, even, even though sometimes you guys tick me off and, you know, I get it. You, I tick you off, and, but I'm still privileged. Like, where, where else would I want to be in the world except for part of his church? I, mean, I, I don't know where I would be without being a part of his church. I remember the day that I was not part of his church. And I know all the joy and, and the things that God has brought. And yes, there's been hard times. And yes, there's been sanctifying moments and lots of them. But I would want to be nowhere else except for part of his church. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to be married, to be a father and a grandfather. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to, to be a pastor, to be able to preach the word, to, to be able to do those things. But all of that compels in comparison to having the privilege of having eternal life that I do not deserve with Christ. I do not deserve that. You do not deserve that. It is a privilege that God is doing. In the new covenant, not only is he providing his, his son as the priest, he's providing the people, he's drawn us. He's, he's put, John chapter six, verse 44, it says we cannot come to the Father unless the Father first draws us. The Father is even drawing his bride for his son. He's creating it. He's bringing people to himself. And then he gives us the ultimate privilege of spending eternity with him. That we've done nothing to deserve the thousand bucks that I did not deserve. I clearly do not deserve eternal life with Christ. And yet, he gives me the privilege to have that. We've got to get out of the first verse. This is the last part of 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He's just saying, look, the reason that they can have this eternal inheritance is because a death has occurred. A death has occurred, and what did that death do? It redeemed them from their transgressions under the first covenant. And under this first covenant, they, they didn't get redemption. They just got a covering. But now a death has occurred, a new death, that redeems them. It gives them a clear conscience. That's what they was talking about in, in verse 14. It gives them a clear conscience now. This death is, is an incredible way to purify us and our conscience. And it's going to cover all the things under the first covenant. Then he gets in verses 16 and 17. He talks about this example of the will, right? This, this idea of a, the last will and testament. If somebody has a will and when they die, you get something. It says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And so before that check could get to me, before I could get that and cash that check, my guess is that that legal firm, that, that attorney, needed a death certificate to say, yes, that lady has passed. She's legally deceased. Thus, I can disperse the riches of her estate. And Raleigh gets a check. That's what he's saying here. For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So Jesus' death had to be established. He had to come before the foundations of the world. God knew that he was going to have to send his son to become a man and walk among us, be sinless, and that before any of this grace could be distributed, before his estate could be poured out upon his children, the death was going to have to happen because it is going to be the thing that unleashes this new covenant. It goes on there. It says, for a will takes effect only at death. Only at death. Now think about what God is 
working through before the foundations of the world. He's planning all this out. He's thinking about this. He's building a system, a beautiful, majestic system to redeem a people, and he's willing to say, I'm going to build in that that my son has to die for them. That is just incredible. Of all the things he could have done, all the ways he could have redeemed people, do you really think that a few people thousands of years ago just whipped this up? That this beautiful 3,500-year expanse book from probably written over 3,500 years, over 35 different authors, came up and was able to put all this together? This is a glorious thing that God is doing. It goes on there, for, for the will only takes effect at death. And since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so he has to die. So when Jesus is, is can you imagine this, what Jesus must be understanding and thinking when he's with the disciples and he's saying, you know, I have to die. No, you don't have to die. They had no idea what they were trying to stop right there, did they? The whole issue of the new covenant, all the things that were not going to depend on us anymore, the lavishness of his estate, all of the goodness, the eternal life that is wrapped up, but Jesus saying, but none of that is yours until I die. In fact, not even, not even yours, but nobody in the Old Testament is going to get any of that unless I go and I get crucified and I get resurrected because I'm, I'm not a sinner. They just didn't have an insight of that, obviously. And what I'm saying is that we have that insight now. We can see this beautiful beautiful picture. Then he goes on in verse 18 through 20, and he, he, now he compares that to the Old Testament. He's saying, okay, that's what that death does now, and that's what Jesus' death is doing. It's unleashing this, this privilege of the New Testament. He's providing everything. But then in verse 18 through 20, he compares it back to the Old Testament. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's just saying, look, okay, yeah, the first covenant had to be inaugurated with blood as well. He says, for when every command of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, a few things I want to point out about that. This, I'm not going to read the text, but this goes back to Exodus 24, we talked about a few weeks ago, where they're at Mount Sinai. They've been, the people have been delivered out of, of Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. God is, is building a covenant with them. They've received the law. And basically Moses goes to the people and says, okay, here's what God wants. He, here's his law. I've wrote it down. I'm going to repeat it to you. Will you obey this? Yes, we will. We will do everything written in that book. And we know that didn't go well. But so what does Moses do? He ratifies the covenant with blood. And so they kill some animals. They sprinkle on the people, it says. Now, I will tell you, if you do some really diving in deep research into the Old Testament, the author here in Hebrews is kind of conflating a couple things, I think on purpose. Um, because when you look at the Old Testament, there are certain things that the author says here, like, did he sprinkle it on the book? Did he sprinkle it on the people? Some of that's in the Old Testament. Not all of it's there. And he's going to say a little bit more about this. But what I think he's doing is he's looking at, at the picture of the big picture. He's looking not only at the time there at Mount Sinai where, where God and, and they went into this old covenant and they had this agreement. But he's also looking at the duties of the high priest for all these hundreds of years and what the priest did. And he's kind of putting them together because really what he's pointing is this, I'm comparing it to the whole old covenant, not just to where Moses was at, but all the things that we've been instructed to do. And so he does this. And so like I said, if you go back and look at Exodus 24, you'll see that. 
Then he says in 21 and 22, he gives a further illustration here. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood the tent. Now remember, when, when Moses was out Mount Sinai, and they, were, they had the book, and they were, there was no tabernacle yet. hadn't been built. God hadn't given the instructions to that yet. So here I think the author is now kind of bringing in the tabernacle and all the priestly duties. He's putting this all in one lump thing. As is in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He's just stating to them something they already understand, but now he's saying, but this, this thing is going to happen. It's already been happening, but Christ has come, and he is, his blood is going to purify us from all of this, right? And so we see in Matthew verse, or chapter 26, verse 28, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we shared the Lord's Supper together. Jesus is very clear about what's happening here and what's, what's going to have to happen to ratify this new covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. So he's ratifying. He's getting ready to ratify. He's, he's sharing some wine with them. We take juice here when we do this. And this is this idea that this is this picture, this is the thing that's going to ratify the new covenant. That's why it's so important that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because when we do that, we're saying this is the thing that made all this possible. It made eternal life possible. With Christ, it made forgiveness of sins possible. It satisfied the wrath of God. All of this was triggered by this thing that God has done through his son. So it's, this is the beauty of this. It's for my blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is just saying, this is going to be the thing that is gonna, I'm going to lavish on you. And everything is going to come through this. So what do we see? Not only do we see that God has provided a perfect priest, a people for himself, and privileged with eternal life, but God provides the only acceptable payment, which is the blood of Christ. The whole whole thing, the whole majestic plan was built on Christ. And so when we we talk about the importance of of loving and and knowing Christ and being found in Christ and that he's he's the only way, the only truth, right? Everything is based on him. Everything, the whole sacrificial system, all the, the, the new covenant, all of it, even the old covenant was pointing to him. And now we see in the new covenant, he's the only acceptable payment, which is his blood. And, and when it talks about his blood, it doesn't mean that he could cut himself and put some blood somewhere. No, he has to die. This, this idea of blood means that he gives up his life. Look at Hebrews chapter 23. It says, thus... It was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, better sacrifices than these. He's just really, what he's saying here, he says, so all the things in the tabernacle that were earthly needed to be covered with blood, needed to be sprinkled with blood because of the rites, and and without it there was no forgiveness of sin. It was this picture that he was creating, so these things need to happen. But he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And this is, he's really just painting a picture here. He's saying, in heaven, where the tabernacle, where Christ is, where he's, he's mediating for us, right? He's interceding for us. The priest, our priest couldn't go there because that required a better sacrifice, something that was holy and pure. You can't come before the Lord God in that place, in that sanctuary, and be a sinner. It was one thing to come into the tabernacle with some incense around you and be in there for you know, however many minutes in there and to get out, right? Now, 
Jesus is ascended to the heavenly tabernacle, and it, it requires holiness. It requires a perfection that no one here on earth could have except for him. That's why the author goes on in verse 24 and says, For Christ has entered, not the holy places made with hands, not the, not the tabernacle here on earth, which are copies of true things, which is good, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, I will just tell you that it says, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's where this relationship now comes. I was telling you that the priests of the Old Testament didn't really, couldn't have a relationship with God because it was one of justice and, and wrath, and he would in and he covered. Now Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary, and he's before God. In fact, that, that translation there, you could really say, um, now appears in the presence of God, face to face with the Father. No, no need to come, no need to worry, no need to run out, no need to, to wonder if it's going to be okay. Am I, am I going to be struck dead? No, Jesus is holy. He is before the Father. He can now intercede for us continually. He goes on there in verse 25, first part of 26. He explains that it was only necessary one time. That's why Jesus didn't have to come back, right? He, he goes into the holy sanctuary and he stays there. In fact, Scripture sometimes says he sits down, it's done, it's finished, right? And so now the author just kind of wants to let them know it's, it's not going to be necessary to be repeated because that's what's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. So he goes in verse 25, says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. He didn't go there and offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So Jesus took his own blood. He says, so he's not entering there with somebody else's blood, like our priests do, he's there with his own blood. Then it says, and for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So what the author's really saying, look, if that wasn't enough, he would have to go all the way back to the beginning of creation and be atoning for everybody all the time if that was true. And he's just saying that's, that's not true. He does it once for all. And I know that sometimes people get, you know, I, I can get a little... Um, direct on some things at times, and I, I, I think, I hope that's good. I hope I do it lovingly. Here when it's talking about he's once for all, like there's no more repeating sacrifices. And, and, I'm, and I love many of my, I have some Catholic friends, but that doctrine that the Catholic Church teaches is that every time they do Mass, and maybe you're, maybe you're Catholic, maybe you have history in Catholic, maybe you attend the Catholic Church right now, what that doctrine is saying is that he's being re-crucified and suffering every time they have Mass. And that absolutely stands as a front to Scripture. Christ goes into the tabernacle, holy tabernacle, one time, and he dies, and it's sufficient. And a few weeks ago, I think I explained to you, that's why when many times when you see um, in, a, in a Protestant church, you'll see a cross, and notice what's missing. Jesus, he's not there. A crucifix, which is generally associated with the Catholic Church, a lot of times Jesus is still on there because they believe he's continuing to die for them and suffer for them. No, that's not what the text, what did I just read, right? What did I just read? That's not what happens. Nor it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood and not his own. For then he would have to, have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. We would say that his, his death wasn't enough. And what the author is saying, it was clearly enough. Because on the end of verse 26, but as it is, he's just claiming it now, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's just saying, look, the end of the age meant that all this was culminating at this point of the, of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the end of that age. It says, but as it is, he's just stating the fact he has appeared once for all at the end of the age, but what did he do? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's over. That's, that's why we appreciate so much his statement on the cross when he says, it is finished. I don't have to die again. I don't have to suffer anymore. It's done. It's done. Right? I've made the payment that they can't make. Right? First Peter, Peter says it this way in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God did what we could not do. He died. He was righteous. We can't do that. We don't have a righteousness of our own. He dies for us. So notice all these things are coming with the new covenant. God is bringing and doing everything and providing everything for the new covenant. He's now provided the sacrifice. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, then after comes judgment. He's just reminding that, yeah, Jesus died once. And then comes something else, the judgment. Now, Christ isn't going to get judged because he's sinless. But he's reminding them, he says, look, we're all going to die, and then there's going to be judgment. Now, what does this stand in contrast to? Things like Hinduism where you die multiple times and come back as other things in reincarnation. It fly, that's not what he's trying to reference here, but I'm just pointing that out. He's, he's definitely putting a big hole in the side of Hinduism and reincarnation, right? They can say, well, there, there were people who died more than once. Lazarus was brought back from the dead, right? And he died again, yes. But notice that he didn't come back as somebody else. And ultimately, when he ultimately dies, he was resuscitated. When he ultimately dies, he's going to stand before the Lord, there's only a couple exceptions in Scripture. There was two people um, that we believe, in, at least scripturally, we see that they didn't die, Elijah and Enoch. They were taken up by God, right, for his purposes. So what, what the author is just saying is, we're all been appointed once to die, and then there will be this judgment. There'll be something when we die. There will be a, a reconciliation of one sort or another. Something's going to happen here, right? This is, don't miss this. So for Christians, what does that look like? Right? What does that look like? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear. He's talking to the church here. He's saying, well, we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Yes. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes they call it the Bema seat. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Why we live, God is going to judge what we've done whether good or evil. Now, the first thing that many of you think when you hear that, it's like, well, man, I got a lot of bad stuff. I'm going to be judged. I thought I wasn't judged. I thought, I thought Jesus died for my sins. I'm, I'm covered. That's absolutely true. You will not be judged for sins here in this picture. And it looks like it because it says what's well, good or evil. The, really, that translation and the, really that, in the Greek, really, that's not a moral thing. It's a, it's a wisdom thing. It's a where really is your, your love and your passion at? So let me give you an example. And I'm going to rile some of you up here. What God is saying is, is that I've covered you. I'm not, I'm not judging your sin. But I'm going to look at your life after you came to, 
or found, be found in Christ, after I called you to be my own, after I made you my bride, and I want to see how you lived. And in your eternity, is, is gonna, you'll be saved, but your rewards are going to be based on how you lived. And, and when it says whether good or evil, what God is really saying, it says, what have you done with what I've given you? I've given you a priest. I've called you to be my own. I paid your penalty. I've done all of this, right? I've made you mine. Are you living only now for yourself? Is this only for you? I'll give you an example. I'm just going to, people that want to come to church three or four times a year, and, and I, I'm so grateful they're here. I'm, if you're one of those people, I'm grateful you're here. I was one of those people years ago. I don't know what God is going to say when we stand before him and say, now, I'm not saying we're not saved. That's not the point here. The point is, are we, are we honoring God? If God is saying, look, if I've done all of this for you, and now you're just going to live your life for yourself, you're going to be judged for that. You're going to be rewarded or not rewarded based on that. You're in heaven. You say, well, I just crossed the finish line. That's all I really care about. Well, shame on you. That's not how you should feel. We should want to bring glory to God. We should want to live for him. If God has put his spirit in us and redeemed us and saved us and give us eternal life, the privilege of eternal life, why would we not want to live for him? And so God has every right to say, I'm going to judge you on that. You're still my child. You're still my son. But, but my, your rewards are going to be based on that. Some people want to say, well, you know, so what are you living for? I think God's going to say, look, so what have you done with, with all the life that I gave you? What have you done with all the resources that I gave you? What have you done with all the time that I've given you? Oh, I've used it for myself. So, you know, we, we get to the end, and what, we, what do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. So you think somebody that, that spends three or four weeks at church kind of just doing the ceremonial thing and spends the rest of the life on themselves and, and their ministry, their, their whole life is really about just acquiring wealth for themselves and, and, and going on vacation. And, and, you know, and by the way, sports are absolutely the most important thing on Sunday, so we absolutely have to kneel down before that. Do you think God is going to say, well done? Wait, wait, wait to get your kids in there on Sunday morning and, and teach them how to play baseball. I'm just telling you what the Scripture is telling us. I'm just telling you when I stand before the Lord, I want to hear well done. And believe me, I have a lot of things that I don't do well, Right? But I just, want, I just want to show you what God is asking of us. He's done all of this for us. How, how what an affront it is. In fact, I would say so much so if some of that, when we go that far, we got to start to wonder whether really we've been born again. Because if you can do that and have no qualms about that, I'm saying I think you just think you checked a box at some place and I don't think you've been given a new heart. I'm not that judge. So when he says, you'll receive what is due, what you've done in the body, whether good or evil, he's just saying, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you use it just for yourself? Or did you use it for me to bring me glory? Ephesians chapter 2 says, you know, we've been saved by grace of faith, not of ourselves, there's no one can boast. But he says, I've, I've, I've given you works created for you for works that I've ordained for you to do in the future. Like, there's this work that we need to do. There's, look, if we've been given all this, I mean, I think about what, what LifeWise Ministry is doing, right? They are using their gifts and their talents to share the gospel with young children. Or they could say, well, I'm saved. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I don't need to do any of this. That doesn't pay very well. In fact, love, it's volunteer time. I ain't doing that. Second Timothy 4, 8. 
Paul says this, Henceforth there will be laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, he's going to judge perfectly rightly, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's he saying here? We're going to receive this because we're waiting and longing for him, and I'll get that in a minute. So what is that? So that was the believers. Now, what does it look like for people who don't, are not found in Christ? I'm only just going to read part of this. Um, Revelation 20, verse 11, 12, and then 15. This is John speaking. So then I saw a great white throne in him who sits on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's two things. We're either going to be at the, the great white throne judgment as unbelievers. And it says, well, they're going to be judged for what they've done. He's going to say, look, you're going to be under the law. And so come and tell me why you should be holy and righteous and come to eternal life. And they will not have anything to offer. And they will be judged based on what they've done. And they will be not found in the book of life. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. That contrast to what Paul is saying is if we're in the new covenant, if we're in Christ, the thing that God has done and made for us and called us and given us a priest, if we're there in that life, we will also be judged, but not of our sin, of how we've handled our life. We will be in heaven. It will be in eternity. But our desire should be one to say, but I hope the Lord will see that I've lived for him. And I will tell you that that's how we get an assurance of our salvation as we look at our life and we see that that's what we're desiring. All right, got to get to and wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, right? Not everyone, but many, those he calls, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So Jesus is, is going to come again, not to deal with sin. He already did that. He already came. We came to the high priest. He's died. He's shed his blood. He's been the payment. He's interceding. He's going to come again. And what's he going to come this time? He's going to come for his wife, his bride. He's going to come for us, the church. The question, though, notice this, is but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Are you awaiting him? When was the last time you said, Lord, I'm ready. Come today. Take me home. This is not my home. I want to go home. Or are you so wrapped up in what the, what the world has given you that you're like, no, Lord, don't come now. I got, I got things, man. I'm getting married. I got, I got a good job. I'm, 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 I've got good wealth. I've got a new car. I need to build bigger barns so I can store some of this stuff. Sound familiar? Don't come yet. I haven't had a chance to enjoy it all yet. Like heaven is going to be a miserable place? I'm like, why wouldn't you want him to come? For millennia, the church has been longing for him to come. 
Come, Lord Jesus, like now, today. I will tell you that you can ask Terry. We have this conversation frequently. Many times we'll say today would be a good day. Tomorrow would be a good day. Now would be a good time. I'm ready. I love all you guys, but I want to be with the Lord. I trust that many of you will be with me there. I'm ready to go. Now, I know that my heart sometimes says, well, but there are people in my life that do not, do not know you yet. Father, you have not, you've not caused them to be born again. I, I want you to save them. And I pray for them repeatedly. And I pray for them even more so because I want him to come. And I know I need to be on my knees because I want him to save them before he does come. Boy, what a, what a tension there, right? But I know that when he comes, everything that he planned to do, his purpose will be met, regardless of who I think is saved or not saved, God is going to say, it is time and it is right and now is it. And we should desire that. It will change how we live. It says there, they will save the sins of many. If you look back in Isaiah, some 750 years or 700 years before Christ, Isaiah writes, he writes it in chapter 53, verse 12. He says, because he's poured out, he's talking about Christ here, he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. 700 years later, earlier, he's predicting, Isaiah's saying this is going to happen. Here the writer of Hebrews is saying he's going to die for the sins of many. That's just been this picture. And what happens? He does. He comes and he dies and calls the people to himself and he makes them holy and redeems them. It goes on there, it says, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That was 700 years before this. And all of a sudden, all the pictures now of the tabernacle are pointing this and the, and the author of Hebrews says he is our intercessor. He's there. What a continuous, beautiful picture of God's majestic plan. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you let go of all those things? Look, all things have been given for, 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 for good and, and for our pleasure. Absolutely. I'm not saying we can't enjoy things. I'm not saying, absolutely. But are they your thing that you're holding? What is it that you're longing for? More of that or Christ? Are you longing for more things? Are you longing to stay here longer? Are you longing for Christ? Why we're here, absolutely. We need to be good stewards. We need to enjoy these things. And as we enjoy those things, we give God praise and glory for them. And we, let, we hold them loosely. They're just things. They have no eternal significance. They just paint a picture of, of the beauty and the, the creativity of God, but we hold them loosely. And so what's the last thing we see here? What else does God provide? He provides the promise of Christ's return. It is the thing that we long for. When we take communion, Jesus says, I will not do this again. I will not share this until, until I come again, right? There's this picture of Christ coming back, and we long for that. So communion is a way that we look back, and we also look forward in our time of the Lord's Supper. God provides the promise of Christ's return. So what's the takeaway for you today? What's the thing that we can, what's the, it's the whole theme here in the text is God provides all things through Christ. All things. Everything's reconciled him. He is the high priest. He's the payment. He's the one that makes intercession. Everything that happens is through him. The promise of his return is obviously through him. The privilege of eternal life that we get is through him only. 
Once again, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All of it, even looking back at Abraham and all there, it's all through Christ. It's all about him. So, so God provides all things through Christ. And so why do you think we put an emphasis on making sure that people know Christ and are found in Christ? Because everything is based in him. Everything. Everything. So th- th- people say, well, Jesus is just one way among many. No. He's the only way. All things are in him. And so what's the question for us? Just simple. Are you in Christ? Are you, I said it a couple weeks ago, are you in the new covenant? Are you in that? And you say, well, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if I believe or not. How do I get in, in Christ? How do I do that? Do I, do I walk forward and check a box somewhere and, and, and say yes? God can do those things, but here's what I would tell you. If you, if you, are not a believer this morning, you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, the way that that happens, and what I would tell you that you need to do is you need to go home and you need to, well, you can do it in your car, you can do it here right now, but I would say you just need to get before the Lord and you need to ask him, Father, save me. Cause me to be born again. Give me your spirit like you told Nicodemus. Cause me to be born again. Give me a heart of flesh. Take away my sin. You've died for me. Give me that life, that eternal life that only you can give. Because see, it is God that is doing this. It is not you because you check a box. You have to respond, yes. But it is God who initiates faith in us to come and to be transformed and to be born again. So the question is, are you in Christ? And if you're not, that is what we need to do. I want to read you one last passage. This is written to Titus um, by the Apostle Paul kind of sums up what we've been talking about today. For the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. Now, when I say all people, all that he calls, all that believe, obviously he's not talking about everybody, he's talking to the church here, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. So this salvation, he saved us from something, from the wrath of God, but he's saving us for something. I've been saying that a lot lately. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The present age, that means right now. I love how this text puts it. It's no matter where you're at, it's the present age, right? Live in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, Christ. The appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The significance of his appearing. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Right, We've been talking about it. He's doing it. He's purifying his people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the reason we have the want the good works is because what he has done. And we want to respond in good works. We want to respond in, the, in love to what God has done. If he has done all this, then we will respond. And so the question again for you this morning is, are you in Christ? I pray that you are. And if you're not, I would encourage you to cry out to God and ask him to transform you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, may you be glorified in our time together, our worship, how we honor you and how we live our lives. Help us to live holy before you. Help us to to wait for your coming. Help us to eagerly expect it and desire it. 
But while we are waiting and while we are wanting it and desiring it, Father, help us to be about your work, the work of sharing the gospel, the work of proclaiming your name. We live in grace, but we strive for holiness. Father, thank you that you are shaping us and molding us into a beautiful bride for your son. May we be found doing your work when he comes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.